When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You know that fresh produce is the best produce. That's why at Kroger, we invest in local farmers to bring you seasonal picks that taste fresh from the farm good, like sweet corn, refreshing watermelon, and juicy peaches. So whether you're a delivery lover, a picker-upper, or you shop in-store, your local produce always tastes 100% fresh, or you get a 100% refund guaranteed. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Write that, write that down, Fumi Saito. <laughs> Hello from Burbank, California. Yes, once again, thank you for joining us. Another episode of Write That Down on the Fight Game Media Network. I'm Justin Nipper. I edit for fightgamemedia.com. I'm staff writer at F4W Online Wrestling Observer.com. I also work for Pro Wrestling Noah Cyberfight Inc. I'm back with Pro Wrestling's leading. Historian, author, broadcast commentator, journalist, sociologist, Mr. Fumi Saito. Yes. Well, I say that, but I'm, you know, I'm kind of back, but I'm not back with him because unfortunately, you know, I got some bad news. I got some good news. Bad news. Not a brand new episode this week because Fumi-san's so busy writing this new on book. He's been writing day and night. And, okay, here's a little, uh, little morsel of news, I suppose, for you. Recently, uh, there was a team from a channel that interviewed uh, Mr. Fumisaito uh, about some topics. It was a uh, like a wrestling documentary style type of show on a uh, on a cable channel. Uh, yeah, we'll leave it at that for now. That's pretty good, right? Hmm. Well, you know, we're busy. That's the reason we're doing this special, uh, previously released on Patreon only episode. It's kind of a, a combo. It was, it was two weeks combined. So we did, uh, last year we did uh, five parts on Antonio Inoki. And there was one part from that episode that I extracted and released on Patreon, on Fight Game Media Patreon, which was um, pr- pretty much a half an hour focused on Bruce Brody in New Japan. I'm going to release that right up front. And then after that, from about a year ago, I got to sit down with my buddy, author of the Muto Years and Gambaru, Dr. Jonathan Foy. I'm going to play that interview for you. That's what I got for you this week, all right? If you have not already, please subscribe to the Fight Game Media Network on Spotify, Apple, wherever you are usually listening to your podcast. It helps us very much. We will be back next week. And I won't tell you with what, 
but we will be back next week. All right, let's get started talking about Bruiser Brody in New Japan, which was around, you know, during 1985. Okay, let's jump right in. I remember there was a program between Inoki and Bruiser Brody, wasn't there? That was the year. 1985 was the year that uh, Bruiser Brody jumped from old Japan to new Japan. Then Bruiser Brody was Inoki's pretty much, when you think about it, uh, he was the last big rival of Inoki when Inoki was active wrestler. Yeah, he kind of took the place of Hogan, it seemed like, after Hogan jumped to WWF. Right, and also that uh, at the time, uh, I was there for a press conference. Mm -hmm. I was taking notes and also had a chance to sit down with Bruiser Brody and do the interview. And at the time, Bruiser Brody was under impression that he would be working both WWF and New Japan. When, right when he signed with New Japan. So he talked about Hulk Hogan against Bruiser Brody in America. So at, for a while, he believed that uh, he would be working, taking some dates from WWF and also working in New Japan at the same time. But the program, if you worked against Hulk Hogan in America, that would be, like I said, three punches to big boots to leg drop one to three, right? Right. I mean, no matter who the opponent is at the time. Yeah, he and, was on fire, but I, I, I can't see that. It was Brody? With, yeah. So it was Brody who chose not to take WWE dates. And pretty soon, New Japan and WWE partnership was done, you know? And uh, Bruce Brody ended up, you know, taking... New Japan exclusive contract. And between 1985 and 86, there was seven single match between Hulk, uh, Bruiser Brody and Inoki. Seven single match in one year period. Not like America, you you work the same opponent every night for uh, what, uh, uh, you know, 90 day period, and you work like 90 days and around the horn. But the, it, Japanese schedules, you know, work different because because of the sports pages cover wrestling every night with results so, so you can't do the same match all over the you know, all over the place does that make yeah. sense there's yeah. a so yeah different territory different uh geography yeah what yeah what, be... yeah what what if the tokyo sports and nikon sports you know put the wrestling result every day it's like oh are they doing the same match every night they are not going to do that you know yeah different system. so uh, single match yeah uh during the tour you have mostly tag team match and six-man tag team match in main event involving in both Inoki and Bruiser Brody in it, but they're not involved in the finish. And when a single match happened, that's a big deal. And there were seven single match between Inoki and Brody in year 1985 and 86. And the magazines, you know, Weekly Pro Wrestling and Weekly Gang, they all became weekly. And uh, see, when the magazine come out every, you know, once a month, the news is kind of, you know, travel slow. It's all before the internet, of course, but the, the weekly magazine made the thing, uh, made the information travel a lot faster in details too. And uh, the magazine sales was like really up 10 times, you know, by becoming weekly too. And that was around the same time that in America, 
like 83, 84, Wrestling Observer was born. Also. That's right. I think it was 82. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the, the, the 82 version of Wrestling Observer, it only came out like a, every three to four weeks in a big, you know, the legal size photocopy. But not like today's, you know, detailed once a week thing yet. Meltzer, 82, Meltzer was just getting out of college. Uh, news traveled so much more slowly <clears throat> for the next couple decades until the internet started becoming yeah, that too. Yeah, yeah. But the Japanese wrestling community had pretty accurate news um, nonetheless. And the, the point I'm trying to get to is though, nine, between 1985 and 1986, there was a seven single match between Inoki and Brody. Not one match had finished. <laughs> hmm. yeah, that's yeah. Uh, one win by Inoki, DQ, two loss, uh, DQ finishing win- winners, Brody, and four double count out or something, and one 60 minute Broadway. Oh my gosh, but uh, including the one in Hawaii, seven single matches. See, 1985 Inoki could not beat Brody. And I mean, every single American wrestler, you know, superstar that has single match against Inoki, they lose. Don't you think? Mm-hmm. But I think uh, he was undefeated on, until around this time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Aside oh, they, they, they Inoki from... had put put and put over Tiger Jitsu a couple of times mm-hmm. and Stan Hansen a couple of times. But besides that, yeah, uh, nobody really beat Inoki. Really, you know even under the giant mm-hmm. but uh brody was able to conduct his own business that uh you know the match happens right but uh brody wouldn't lose clean in the middle of the ring one two three or submit but the match or you know still took place and they agreed on dq finish and double count finish no contest finish or at the end the last time they met in 86, it was 60-minute Broadway. Then that was the end of it. Inoki ended up not winning clean. And the Brody was the only person who did that. Isn't that weird? How did the fans react? <clears throat> in the First end. encounter, second match, third match, we felt that it was still like a to-be-continued, that we will see the clean finish, which we never had. But uh, yeah, first match, yeah, right, double count out, right, because uh, they don't, they didn't want the clear, clear cut finish in the first night in the first meeting. But the second DQ, yeah, maybe the third match, double count out or, or the no, no contest, ah, maybe. And it, it went on and went on, and they never had clear winner. And uh, the what's interesting is though that uh, Brody was able to pull such result you know so unlike anybody else at the time and you know he must have recognized the money in there that the, right he agreed not to have finish and have a 20 minute 25 minute match good content but don't give people finish therefore there's going to be another single match does that make sense mm. but yeah in the end did the people feel like uh there was ever did was the was the broadway a satisfying finish to their rivalry? It was after, if you remember that the December of 1985, the, the very last night of tag team and first annual tag team tournament, it was called the, not 
the uh, MSG, the Madison Square Garden, Garden Tag Team Tournament anymore because they, um, WWE and New Japan weren't affiliated anymore. At, you know, around the time that the December of 1985, New Japan changed the title of the series as uh, I believe it was either uh, I'll look it up, but uh, it was like a New Japan Tag Team Tournament or World Cup. World Cup, WWE, uh, that the World Cup uh, tag team tournament or something. And the final was going to be Bruiser Brody and Jimmy Snuka against Inoki and Sakaguchi or something, right? Mm-hmm. And on, on on the bullet train going to Sendai, something happened and, and, and Bruiser Brody and Jimmy Snuka both got off from the bullet train and took another train back to Tokyo and left. Boycotted the night. There's a real, fa- real famous, yeah. Oh, that was the IWGP Tag Team Tournament, of course, yeah. Mm-hmm. That uh, Bruiser Brody actually walked out on the, the very final night of Tag Team Tournament. that never took place. So maybe either he was asked to do the job or something, you know, about New Japan that he wasn't happy. And uh, they, you know, Bruiser Brody historically walked out on a lot of companies in America, right? Mm-hmm. Not taking a finish or not taking the money they offered. Or, I mean, it was the last Mohican, last guy to walk out on wrestling companies. Around that time, 1985, that the landscape of American wrestling was really rapidly changing. That the second year of WWE national expansion and all these local promotion were, you know, was getting killed right and left. Remember. TV was changing how things were. Yeah, yeah. Okay. When you turn the TV on, you thought it was Georgia Championship Wrestling on double, double, double TBS. And one morning when you turn the TV on, it was all of a sudden same logo, but WWE TV, right? Mm-hmm. Or when you lived in, if you lived in St. Louis, Missouri, then you thought it was going to be a, a traditional NWA wrestling from Chase. And 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 then all of a sudden, same wrestling mat, you know, show, but the wrestlers are all WWE wrestlers. Oh my gosh! And Vern Gagne's AWA, all the top talent, including well, Hulk Hogan was there, and Jesse Ventura, Adrian Adonis, the Jim Brunzel, the Ken Patera, the even uh, the the Mean Gene Auckland, the the ring uh, the announcer, Bobby Heenan, manager. Even all the way to the Crusher or somebody or Mad Dog Vashan, they were all taken by WWE and became skeleton. And all these territories were dying, you know. And Brody was still sole survivor as a free agent, going to different territory and different, you know, independent. Even uh, even in St. Louis, he didn't work for you know Bob Geigel, you know that he took independent booking and went into St. Louis and worked the independent show. Just Brody, one man show was like, well, they had like nine, seven, eight matches, but uh, with wrestlers that nobody knows, you know. But uh, he brought in the Bruiser Bro- Brody even brought his own opponent like Kira Tim Brooks or somebody or you know young uh, uh, like a John Nord the Barbarian or somebody then you bring your own match <clears throat> and uh, he still drew thousands of people so Bruiser Brody was last pretty much the very final free agent to do so and uh, but at the same time yeah he choose New Japan to be his like main source of income huh 
Yeah, and uh, I mean, he'd, he'd end up going back to Baba and all Japan shortly not after. until Not until end of 1987. For two-year period, he didn't come back to Japan. That was like a, like a Japanese wrestling didn't have Brody, period. It was very interesting. That's when he worked a lot with Puerto Rico, though. I and see. Dallas. Mm-hmm. Dallas, because it was dying day of Von Eric's company and also dying day of Blanchard company. Mm-hmm. in San Antonio and he was when Brody come in and do a special show they still drew so Brody was confident that the way he works certain shows that he can bring in thousands of wrestling fans just by himself and take one good payday or something but the landscape itself uh, it was really changing at the time NWA St. Louis NWA Central State that the, even NWA Georgia Georgia Championship Wrestling NWA Florida they're all they're all closing their doors at the same time NWA Crockett NWA you know Jim Crockett promotion from North Carolina they became NWA itself and survived for another you know three or four years with producer Dusty Rose but eventually you know that the Crockett company had to be sold to Ted Turner therefore they became WCW so those are the history but uh, Brody was involved you know in uh, you know in that time period but still, the back to this New Japan story, December, um, December 12th, uh, December 12th to be exact, 1985, uh, Bruiser Brody along with Snuka, well, Snuka pretty much, you know, agreed, okay, I'll, I'll get off the train with you kind of thing. But uh, Bruiser Brody decided to walk out on New Japan only after, what, 10, nine months? Yeah. And... Uh, they ran the sh- and then uh, Miss, referee Mr. Takahashi uh, called, you know, see, they were on Toro Kayfabe era. So Japanese wrestlers and American wrestlers took different bullet train, right? Mm-hmm. They were not on the same train. And uh, referee Mr. Takahashi called Sakaguchi and Inoki that uh, I think Brody just walked out. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> I mean, like a SOS, right? <clears throat> Because main event guy walking out of company. You know? So there was no official reason given? Uh, the, uh, the pretty much honest reason was given that uh, Brody and Snook walked out on company. Yeah, that was that it, night. But, but for the, for was money, was it just they didn't want to do the job that night? They Was anything particular? I don't know. I, I can't say. <clears throat> hey, they... That, the result was that these Bruiser Brody decided to walk out on, on the company that night. Money, maybe. The finish, probably. And the way it was, <clears throat> overall, the way business was handled, that uh, the Bruiser Brody signed with New Japan uh, March of that year. So the December, only nine months, right? Nine months period. And... Uh, uh, Brody felt that there there are too many bosses in New Japan that uh, you would never get to Inoki, you know. Whereas, if there was anything to to sit down and to, and and discuss or talk talk about, I believe Bruiser Brody was able to sit down with Giant Baba person to person, closed door. I mean, to have a conversation. I see. Whereas. 
yeah, Bruiser Brody was never able to reach out to Inoki himself to sit down and, you know, go through. Because there was like a more of a corporate situation that you have to talk to Sakaguchi, you have to talk to, I don't know, the, the, somebody from office worker, Sugita or somebody, or referee, uh, Peter Takahashi or somebody. He was not able to get to Inoki and he was really frustrated. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's like a, a bureaucracy. <clears throat> yeah, bureaucracy, and also he didn't want to. He didn't want to get the message through some some ass. You know what I mean? Somebody. Yeah. He wanted to. Yeah, he wanted to get the message messages from Inoki directly, and also he can relay the message directly to Inoki. Therefore, you have communication. That the, there's always a couple of three people in between, and, and, and it's just not very good business. That, uh, yeah, it, Brody himself even told, told me one time that the New Japan does not keep promise. That's not very good. Mm. I don't know which promise that was. You know what I'm saying? Mm. Didn't go into the detail, but he did say that New Japan does not keep promise. That's bad business. So I there see. must must have been something, right? Must have been. Must yeah, have must have something. Been. But um but all in all, you know, Bruiser Brody and Jimmy Snuka walked out on company as of December twelfth of nineteen eighty five. In and then Inoki's answer was though when he got the phone call from Peter Takahashi that uh, all right, let him go, fine. <laughs> Inoki didn't it wasn't like all right, if he wants to walk out, you know, let him walk out, fine. And what they did was that they switched the main event from uh, Bruiser Brody's Jimmy Snuka against Inoki Sakaguchi. Instead, they changed the, the, the main event to Inoki Sakaguchi against Fujinami, uh, Tatsumi Fujinami and Kengo Kimura as a main event. And that was the night Fujinami pinned Anthony Inoki with his four Nelson Dragon Suplex 1-2-3 to win the tag team tournament. And at the end of the night, he was so happy that they, they didn't really talk about Brody anymore. Brilliant finish, huh? Write that down for me, Saito. NFL Sunday Ticket is now on YouTube and YouTube TV which means that it just got easier to be an NFL fan, even if you live far away. Like, maybe you like the Bears, but you're hibernating in Panthers territory. But with NFL Sunday Ticket, your out-of-market team is never more than a short distance away, specifically the distance from you to your remote control. NFL Sunday Ticket, now on YouTube and YouTube TV. Go to youtube.com slash presale to get $50 off. Terms and embargoes apply. Offer ends 919. No refund. Subscription auto renews. What's up? It's Kaylee Cuoco. When it comes to travel, we all have a happy place. I just went to my happy place. I just went to Maui, and it was truly amazing. Priceline has always been about getting you to your happy place for a happy price with deals you really can't find anywhere else, like up to 60% off select hotels in Costa Rica or five-star hotels for two-star prices in Cabo. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Actually, okay. Tell me this: what, not just what got you into all Japan, but what got you into what? Where? How did you decide to choose to focus on the split for the book for Gambaru? Yep. So I had kind of 
been fascinated by the split since it happened. Like I was in high school at the time that the split took place and it was covered by the Aptomags. So I had this UK publication. It was one that reprinted content from the Aptomags. And basically a lot of it, I don't think it really occurred to me at the time kind of how big a story that was, but it was fascinating to see things like, you know, where was Vader going to go? Was he going to join Noah or was he going to stay loyal to Baba? And at the time, uh, the early reporting was that Vader was going to stay with all Japan. And I remember going, oh, I remember who Vader was. I I knew him from the World Wrestling Federation and kind of what's this about him being in Japan? So it had been in the back of my mind as being a very interesting story. And I'd just been in lockdown in Australia. So we had a, a very long um, kind of second lockdown here last year when some cases came up and I knew I I needed to write about something. Um, I'd been fascinated for a long time about how do you come back from something like the split? How do you get a new roster together and how they managed to get Tenru and the new Japan deal. So to me, that was the most fascinating thing. And then you've got, it seems as though from what I looked into all Japan's business really did not drop off until quite some time after the split, despite a lot of people pointing to the split as that's the time when things went bad for all Japan. Um, the fact that they actually managed to do quite solid business for quite some time, that was fascinating to me. So for me, that was always the number one thing I'd wanted to write about. And because we're in lockdown, I had more time on my hands and my wife encouraged me, if you're going to, you know, you talk about writing a book for quite some time, why don't you actually do that now? So that, yeah, that was the thing I, 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 um, I focused on. It was either that or turning my PhD topic into a book, but I think I'm going to put that one off for some time. Yeah. Mm. I really want to see that thing again, uh, <laughs> if I can help it. So yeah, look, um, that was always going to be the thing I, I wanted to write about the most and getting into it and looking at all this information about all Japan, there's definitely more there to explore and I'm definitely not done writing about them. Right. And, and it's, it's funny because you got so much, you extracted so much detail out of, uh, a pretty short period of time. It's, it's uh, the main, I guess the, the meat and potatoes of the book focus on the late nineties, early two thousands. So it's just a lot of what, a lot of the action that took place, it really did happen in those first couple of years. And it's, and in your book covers it, like you said, the first year of the all Japan split was actually relatively successful because they had, and you talked about it in your book, you talked about the, the deals they had with new Japan. They had some dream matches. Fuchi was uh, going over to new Japan and we had the Sasaki and Kawada match. So and it was like a kind of a hot deal, but did it feel like traditional all Japan or did it, you know, that's up to whomever's watching. Exactly. And that's oftentimes been the debate and the sort of thing about all Japan since the split was, uh, and a lot of people bring this up, it, it, this is this like Barber's version of all Japan. And a lot of people said that the time that came after this, the Muto period, um, the Muto era was not your traditional all Japan. So that's a fascinating topic too, in terms of what is this traditional Japan and who decides 
what the legacy of this company is. So there's plenty to go into there as far as all Japan and Barber's vision of pro wrestling and what that looks like. Mm. And I, I think that idea is, uh, we inadvertently come back to it all the time when we talk about Japanese pro wrestling is this idea of not just what is wrestling, but, um, what do you feel are the the pillars, so to speak, not the people, but the actual foundations that uh, make it what it is? What is pro wrestling to you? And the idea, the identity um, issue is something that all Japan had to deal, I guess is still in ways dealing with, while it's not the same exact uh, company, uh, it's still, you know, what is all Japan exactly and how does it relate to New Japan is always the question, it seems like. And how the kind of differences that are there between them, sort of if you look at, as and, and you and Fumi have been doing great work on this with looking at the years in the 1970s and 80s where there was quite a sharp distinction between the two companies, sort of New Japan was your more submission-oriented, more kind of... Um, Martial arts-centric... Exactly. Or a shoot style promotion where Barber's was more the traditional NWA style. And Mm -hmm. I think from there you see, again, quite different styles, but still some sharp distinctions between products in the 1990s. And I think the 2000s, it starts to become a little bit less clear as you have the flirtation between the two brands and you have the dark period in general for wrestling, which was where a lot of change happened anyway. So uh, definitely it's, it's one that I think that we've seen maybe the past 20 years and it hasn't gone away. Um, Pro wrestling Noah has had interesting things with people debating whether or not pro wrestling Noah is what Misawa had in mind for their product. So I definitely think it's not confined to all Japan by any stretch in terms of identity issues or kind of uh, what is this product exactly or what is, yeah, even what is wrestling. You know, I think I, I think you brought it up in the book, but uh, I believe Misawa had more of a desire when uh, after Baba giant Baba had died that he wanted to up the production levels of all Japan. Whereas Motoko Baba wanted to keep it uh, traditional and more orthodox conservative. Um, but I think he had bigger ideas. Is that, is that right? I would say so. So he wanted to run a couple of different venues to what they had previously had a chance to run. Um, when they actually did run the Tokyo dome, this is before Baba died, but it was still late in his life in 1998. They had to come up with a couple of anniversary uh, events. And I would say from what I read about that, that, Baba was more leaning towards the Budokan and those sorts of traditional venues for all Japan. They ran the Budokan a lot where Misawa wanted to run the Tokyo Dome mm-hmm. and things, even, even things like venues or um, working and relationships to other promotions was another one. So by the late 1990s, the approach that the company tended to have was more toward being something of a walled garden is what Chris Charlton goes into in his work. And, sort of it seemed like Misawa was more wanting to work with other promotions, especially around the world and kind of build up some sharing of talent. So um, we see that we also see, as you mentioned, production values and um, generally trying to push new people as well, I think was a big contentious one. Um, 
that match between Takawa Amori and Jun Akiyama was uh, one that they booked for a main event, I believe, in the Budokan. And that was that contentious debate between uh, Misawa and Baba because she, Matoko Baba believed that if you're going to have a Budokan main event, it has to be a triple crown title match or it has to be the tournament final, but it certainly can't just be a match between two rising stars. So even that she was pretty conservative about and kind of the sort of thing that they debated quite hotly. And it's something that's hard to debate because there's a strong feeling whether you're for it or against it, but whether something draws or not, it's one of the hardest things to quantify. Exactly. And I think sometimes you you see it happen a lot where companies need to take some form of risk there in order to put out a product and kind of go by what they seem to detect is working well, but ultimately they need to kind of take that risk to, uh, to do something new. I think we're seeing all Japan's definitely looking to do that this year by returning to the Budokan. And that's going to be interesting to see if they do get um, a, a draw for that show, if that, tends to be uh, something that they get the butts in seats in an arena that big. And um, yeah, definitely they're going to, that's going to be one of the measuring sticks for them this year is going to be uh, in terms of the contemporary product. Is this enough to draw a big arena like the Budokan? And we will see how that goes. Yeah. I guess to fast forward a little bit to, to the modern all Japan, which again, isn't necessarily, it's not exactly connected to uh, the all Japan proper giant Baba's all Japan, but it is, you know, this new, in spirit, it's connected. It's kind of like how stardom is in spirit connected to all Japan women, but it's not exactly the same. Um, but the raw, I mean, I think the roster is great. I think they have some of the best matches on the planet, but I think because of politics, it's hard for them to get people to watch outside of Japan. And even within Japan, there's already a pretty, you know, there's a thick glut of, of great wrestling right now, especially with, uh, Noah and, uh, stardom and new japan and dragon gate just those on its own ddt that's a lot already so uh what do you think of uh, this position that the new iteration of all japan is in right now it's an interesting one because their live attendance has been this was something i was talking about on another podcast i was on a week ago i, I spoke to the eastern lariat and basically they had a quite solid number where they drew close to 800 people at Kurikan Hall. And so it's, it's an interesting one because they have had a couple of shows already this year that have drawn in excess of 300 people. And there's not too many companies doing that. So I, I would probably place them in terms of the current lay of the land um, somewhere between the third to fifth biggest promotion ocean in contemporary Japan, um, which is obviously nowhere near what they used to be, but you know, I I'm kind of bullish on, on all Japan. I think that they could stand to be bigger than they are, but definitely have been putting in some of the right steps lately. Mm. Um, obviously it's not a good look when you have talent leaving and they've had, um, three people at the end of last year leave the promotion, but one of them has already done some shows since in Zeus. Um, but Zeus, Zeus wanted to start up Osaka Pro again. Yeah, I believe, like- I, I believe Zeus is still, I mean, while he's not associated with Japan, I mean, he's still associated with all Japan. I think this Osaka Pro thing is going to be, there's going to be a lot of talent sharing. So I think he'll 
he'll be around, but I don't think it's as uh, pronounced as he's going to leave all Japan forever. I think he'll still be showing up on cards, just not in a main event picture like he was a few years ago. I would be very surprised if he wasn't on the champion carnival lineup, for instance. Oh, sure. So something. Kind of yeah. Like yeah, he'll I, pop up for big events. I just don't think, I think that was maybe a, a formal announcement to say, I'm not going to be one of the main event players right now. I'm not going to be face, you know, facing Suamo or Kento Miyahara, Jake Lee for any titles, but I'm going to run this Osaka pro. That's where he's originally from. Uh, it seems like on the undercard recently, there's been some, you know, younger guys coming in Osaka pro guys with Zeus. Um, yeah. So it seems like that's one of their way they're, they're connecting their and, and building their own, um, their own territory or, or connections in Japan. There are alliances, but they're on the other side of the fence with, compared with New Japan right now. Definitely, though, it'll be interesting to see how they go about uh, negotiating that show that they've got planned together um, that's coming up in Kirken Hall. Uh, which one is that specifically? So there's an event that is scheduled for right in the middle of Champion Carnival, and that's to cover the 60th anniversary of Kirken Hall. Um, so it's not either right. anniversary yet, but it's a shared anniversary because both of them are celebrating their 50th year. Kirken Hall is celebrating the 60th anniversary of the original Kirken Hall, if I'm not mistaken there. They're looking to have a, an event together. So there'll be a couple of... Mostly tag matches have announced um, two multi-man tag matches um, between the two companies, though. So it'll um, it will be uh, two sets of matches that have current champions in them um, against one another. So their tag champs will be against one another in a six-man tag and this kind of thing. So I don't expect it to be a huge kind of blow-away event where you see a lot of big singles matches. But I think it might point to, from what they've announced, um, just a couple of like sort of tag matches and that kind of thing um, against each other. So it's going to be an interesting event there um, in terms of how they negotiate who wins and who loses. And I think it's going to be similar to the Noah event um, that New Japan had on the third night of Wrestle Kingdom, mm. in, in as far as you might see a lot of big tag matches. Yeah, it seemed like uh, there weren't any surprises or dream match upsets or anything like that, but it did seem like the trade-off was New Japan looks great in the end, but a couple of Noah's stars are made or polished, like uh, Kaito Kiyomiya, for example. I mean, he looked great in that uh, final tag match, and it, it did give Noah a spotlight, even though uh, the it, it's beyond the win and loss thing. It's familiarizing this superstar from another company and the same with Keno and in the other match with LIJ, I think that was kind of like, um, that shared PR kind of like when ECW popped up in uh, WWF in the late nineties, it was, uh, mutual benefits. Uh, we'll see what happens and then we'll go our separate ways. But, um, I hope something can happen like this with all Japan, because I think that's something they need is just extra eyeballs on the product. It's crazy to think, but in Japan, there are still, to this day, fans who, if they watch Pro Wrestling Noah, they don't watch New Japan. Or if they watch New Japan, they're not fans of All Japan. Mm -hmm. There's still this brand loyalty that 
I, I think we had during the Monday night wars to some extent, but I definitely remember more often than not, my friends who are wrestling fans loved it all. You know what I mean? So it, it doesn't really compare um, here to over there. And so far as I think from what I see, it certainly seems that there are a lot of fans that will like one wrestling brand and this will be a chance then for them to highlight the contemporary version of all Japan and hopefully get those, as you say, the eyes on them because it's a much bigger platform that uh, new Japan currently have. Uh, and it's, it's funny just someone like Kento Miyahara, who I'm, I'm such a, like a homer for, or, or a supporter of, because this guy, I think we were talking about crowd attendance and anytime I watch the guy, whether he's in front of a thousand people or he's in front of 10 people, he acts as though he's in front of, 20,000 people. Yeah. Um, I've never, I don't want to say I've never seen anything like this, but he's comparable to Tanahashi Okada in that way, but there's something extra about him. Some, and it, and it's not, and he, he's an all Japan guy, but he's also not necessarily the traditional all Japan style. You would think either. Um, yeah. yeah. W- what are your general thoughts on Miyahara? Mr. Triple oh, Crown, as he's being called these days. Have you had a chance to see him live or to be in the arena? Uh, okay, I, I have, but it was before. Um, yeah, it was, it was before the current Kento Miyahara. I saw him in uh, 2014, and it, it sounds a lot better than it really was. But it was uh, Miyahara and Junakiyama when he was still president. Uh, they had a singles match, but Miyahara was still kind of like. Um, he, I don't think he was allowed to have all that charisma and personality. He really came off like a Tanahashi copy yeah. at that time. And, and uh, it was more of Akiyama just giving him a beating for about 15 yeah. minutes. So if I've, if I've got the timeline correct, there is that when he was, I think he was a member of X seed or something like that at that point, something like that. Yes. Yes. He had different hair color. Um, uh, this was the, yeah, the Akiyama period before yeah. he, uh, he, he was president he, he gave it up and, I think they were trying to build Miyahara, but it seemed like um, the the big the big star on the show that day was um, was, was the outside was Kai. He, yeah, yeah, yeah. Some, it was around that time, so maybe seven years ago. Yeah, um, I bring that up. Like the the times that I've seen him, I'm, I'm trying to think what year that was. I want to say 2019. Um, he had that match against Kai Miyahara mm-hmm, mm-hmm. at. Kirken, and um that was one of those shows just before wrestle kingdom so you got a lot of foreign fans there and um when we're there like i i remember there was that i remember the dome show the next day had loud like loud, loud kind of reactions to bits and pieces like the when um tanahashi won the title and stuff like this but it might just be because the sound goes up in the tokyo dome but for one or another, I remember thinking that Kendo, Kento versus Kai was the loudest match I saw that weekend. Now, it wasn't, yeah. I don't know if it was weekend. <laughs> you know what I mean? Though. You you know, yeah, it's uh, Tokyo Dome has a different kind of... Um, it really depends on where you're sitting in the Tokyo Dome. And anytime I've been there, I've been way up in the nosebleeds. Yeah. So it's more of like I'm watching on the television and it's uh, my experience is based on who's around me. So the match better be pretty good. But I think Corkin, I know what you mean. It's more powerful because of the stomping. You feel the stomping. You know what I mean? Yeah. When uh, th- I, this is unique to Japanese sports, but uh, when people 
are really excited for something, especially if you're watching a great match, there's a, a great near fall. You hear, you sometimes hear it on a video. It's just people stomping and getting excited, slamming their feet against the concrete. But when you're there, when you're there inside a filled up cork and hall, it's pretty unique. And it goes right through you. Um, right. It's very, it's a, there's a physical, like a, a feel like you being at a concert and you're feeling the, the amplifier of the cabinets, uh, you know, resonating in your body. It's that kind of physical experience. Exactly. So the reason I bring that up is I remember seeing the way that Kanto had that crowd in the palm of his hand and him, his match being the loudest of the weekend. And, um, kind of thinking like this is a guy that has charisma on a completely different level here. They've made him the ace of all Japan for a reason. He doesn't do a whole lot in the ring. He's not a flashy kind of competitor in the way that sometimes we kind of um, uh, are used to maybe if we look at the Noah roster, or if we look at some of the new Japan guys, he doesn't do spectacular kind of looking moves. Um, he, takes people outside the ring and headbutts them and does a, a comedy spot with the ref. He, although he does have a spectacular uh, German suplex that he hits that he managed to put uh, Abdullah Kabayashi through um, in their main event. That looked great. But in the main, he kind of uses a, a very basic kind of game plan that kind of draws the crowd in over time, kind of builds the match. I think that's the similarity between sort of what Miyahara does and your traditional um, sort of uh, uh, Royal Road sort of style, I guess, but it doesn't have the same bumps. It doesn't have the same head dropping or the same kind of um, level of, of crazy risk-taking, I would say, um, in terms of that. In the book, I kind of called it um, new King's Road style. Sure, but yeah. Yeah, that's probably what I would liken it to in that I don't think they have the same level of I think they're a bit more injury conscious anyway. Right. And some like Miyahara is not necessarily an all Japan dojo trainee. He, he came up with the, the wrestle. What was it? Wrestle um, WJ with uh, Nakajima at Choshu Sasaki's um, company in the early two thousands. He came out through, through that dojo and he was, and then it was um, diamond ring, I think, or something like diamond that. ring. So uh, they, this version of all Japan has a lot more, non-traditional non-all japan types because there's no real dojo i mean there's a dojo now but it's not the same as it was um so it's just a new generation fitting for the style of wrestling that's more popular today they've definitely had some great graduates from the dojo and people that they've put through there so the saito brothers i think are big prospects i think um they've definitely got a few people like that but they really can't afford to solely rely on that talent. And it's all, it's largely people that are still coming through. So they're definitely relying on people that have been through sort of Osaka pro or through other promotions before. It's going to be interesting to see how they go with talent from here. They've got quite a lot of future prospects, but in terms of people that they can rely on now for main events, they've lost a few people. So I don't know if they look to sign more people or what the plan is for them. And that's going to be the challenging part, I think. Yeah. I'm interested to see uh, how it shapes up by the end of the year, but I think they have a, a great core of young 
younger, not young guys, but guys young enough to begin to carry a company somewhere. Miyahara, Jake Lee, Aoyagi, the Aoyagi brothers. Um, yeah. So we'll see. I just hope they get some kind of, uh, I hope it just becomes easier for Westerners to be able to watch them aside from their streaming service. You know, mm. that is, mm. that's, mm. it's something that I, uh, it, you know, it's great. I don't know if you follow the wrestle universe, but they just released their own app and that makes for me, my life, it just, it's so much easier to just pull up an app and, and watch something, uh, compared with trying to watch new Japan world. Um, yeah. Oh, all Japan TV is another, another thing, another level of inconvenience there. If you wish to stream it to your TV, you have to mirror whatever you're streaming it through. So that's always the best. They've definitely not got any, they've got some English commentary, but it's so far been getting the likes of Yoshitatsu on to do commentary. Now Yoshitatsu was remembered in new Japan for doing the, one of the more terrible uh, commentary pieces on wrestle kingdom. So iconic for him sort of saying you know they would say things like oh you know bullet club is out here are you happy to see bullet club and he would say yes to that and, and things like that. So, i just but, recently watched yeah. uh, the intro to the triple crown match where um jake lee was coming out the the camera did a, a low angle zoom shot from his feet up and they he looked really cool and yusatsu was talking and he just stops and goes Oh, wow. And then a long pregnant pause. And then he goes, yeah, he's cool. (laughs) I mean, you kind of love it, but it's not fantastic as far as commentary goes. And I think it, yeah, I think they might need to get something by more by way of some more regular English commentary. If this is to be something that they're clearly looking to expand, um, maybe do what Noah did and give, uh, uh, sort of a pay-per-view experience as well as their regular streaming and maybe if they could get someone like Stuart Fulton and Charles uh I forgot the have I got the names right there I don't know oh Mark I, Mark Pickering uh, Mark, Mark Pickering I uh, for some reason thought of Charles uh so, another person there that doesn't actually do commentary at the moment but Mark Pickering and Stuart Fulton I know they've got their connections and they've got their their obligations to Noah but they seem to do other things as well with stardom and a few other promotions like that. So if they're not exclusive, that would be who I would be barring any kind of conflict of interest or any issue like that. I would be yeah. trying to get those guys. Excuse me with all Japan and, and no, I don't know what the, the political status is. I think all Japan is one of those companies where I don't know where the alliances are. You can tell there's some alliances between, you know, all Japan, big Japan, Osaka pro and such. And Noah on the other side is now under the cyber agent umbrella. That's also flirting sometimes with new Japan through Abema TV. So there's that layout over there. That's the big, big popular kids table. And uh, the smaller, uh, 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 what's the word I'm looking for? The smaller, not, not gritty, uh, scrappier table is on the right side. And yeah. that's with all Japan. That's with the more local, but uh, fan driven companies. Like you're talking about some of the things that bring some of these companies through, they're just so loyal to their company. Like it's a sports team. And definitely um, an interesting thing there with the, the loyalty that wrestlers have to their promotions. And you don't see that in 
the Western promotions in the same way. Um, the idea of someone jumping from one promotion to another is a very big deal in Japan. It doesn't generally speaking happen. Um, but yeah, you're right. It's, it's interesting. The alliances that form, but all Japan definitely had enough to do with pro wrestling. Noah, a couple of years back to book Segura for the champion carnival in 2020. And then it didn't happen because of COVID. So uh, it's one of my my great big what ifs as far as not that it's pro wrestling is even up there in terms of you know your your priorities or anything like that when it comes to COVID. But had the whole thing not happened, I would have been interested to see how that champion kind of would have turned out and how the relationships would have evolved from there. Yeah, I, wasn't the, that the one with Davy Boy Smith Jr. Yep, and Ayoto yeah. Yoshida and. Oh, there's so many talents that they're going to have for that one. Yeah, that... it did feel like they had a bit of momentum just in, in the public interest, general interest, but yet COVID you know, did its thing. And they they still managed, I go into this in the book a little bit, but they managed to turn a profit at the end of that year. So all Japan um, invested in films because they knew that eventually people would go back to the cinema and they wanted to be on the ground floor because there weren't too many films making their way to Japanese theaters. So they invested heavily in a horror film. It did well. The company profited, but that profit wasn't off the back of their wrestling product. It was off the back of them investing in something. So I I'm interested going forward to see kind of if they're going to be even making money from the wrestling product itself. It seems like their strategy so far is completely to rely on investments and kind of make money that way. Mm. it's not the typical pro wrestling approach or um i mean it's also they're still basing this uh revenue like it, the, the, i'm trying to think you know the main revenue is going to be from these investments it's not a house show business it's not a streaming business for them either so that i i don't know i haven't really thought about something like that do you think that's something that's good or bad for a company i don't know how it could benefit over um hold it back. It could be something that it helps them to stay in business and it could help them get um, some money toward the product. I think we saw some increase, however minor in production value, but the main issue that could come up there is you could see a company that's profitable enough, but hollowed out as far as in ring attendance and these sorts of things. Um, That was a point that was made to me um, by Dylan Fox from the Eastern Lariat. He sort of said that CMLL is in that position in Mexico. They're quite profitable, but that doesn't extend to the the actual wrestling product in too many noticeable ways. So yeah, it'd be interesting to see how that fans out. I, I hope that they are able to kind of build quite steadily and kind of do a decent show at the Budokan in terms of numbers and things like that. That would be good for their business for sure. Okay, so uh, I wanted to quickly talk about, you had some other projects coming up. Did you want to talk about any of those? Oh, sure. So, I mean, it depends on how things go, um, sort of, because some of these are things that it depends on if people get back to me and stuff like that. But um, I have definitely started work on a follow-up to Gombaru that kind of looks at the Muto years and kind of only very early stages, of course, but going into what was it like after the company, uh, after Barber handed the company over to Muto, um, some of the promises he made 
to her, um, some of the ways the company transformed over the Muto years and how that whole thing ended. Um, so that's the book that I'm currently kind of getting underway with. It's probably going to be self-published. Um, there's also a book I sent a kind of fairly detailed, um, over overarching kind of, um, uh, proposal for to a publisher and we'll see how that shakes out if they'll um be interested in that it's a proposal to do with a book about personally knowledge history because i've already looked at yeah how all japan survived the split so i'm interested in the other side of that equation as well um and apart from that i'm probably looking just to write smaller things as well about wrestling when i can mm. And so, yeah, we'll see how all this shakes out and, and what I get a chance to sink my teeth into. It's in some ways it's out of my hands and some other ways I'm kind of just enjoying going with it and writing um, without knowing exactly where it's all going to go. Yeah. Cause uh, in that way, you definitely uh, stumble on the picture on the big picture in, in a in an organic way. And it's hard to explain, you know, retracing the history of all Japan, but you'll know what I mean in that, when you do go back and analyze it, you see a lot of details that you never really realized at the initial phase. Most certainly. And I mean, um, the other thing was that, and, and, you know, as you would have found with, you know, your podcast, everything like that, it's good to have someone like Fumi Saito who has actually been um, around for this entire history, who can point to those patterns and to those things that seem to reoccur for the company. Hmm. And um, he uh, apparently wasn't, the most popular person with Motoko Baba. Yeah, she, she said uh, at one point uh, to me, he said, oh, look, I I was okay. Not I was favored. And he said, it depends on um, if she liked you that day or not. Um, and I think that some of the things he wrote maybe or depending on what her mood was at the time, but he was able to enough to be backstage and to kind of um come and go depending on on uh what side of barber he was on um yeah I, i'm sure that he mentioned he, he mentioned all that I, I don't know if it was the last episode or if it was the uh the episode before that that he mentioned that during one of the tokyo dome shows he was there with baba during the uh wrestling summit and mm-hmm. was able to talk to her for a while and chat to her and she mentioned oh that's vince jr he i remember him uh, as a 19 year old running around backstage. So right, with a bow tie. Yeah. So enough to kind of still be able to talk to her on occasion. Um, it would have been an interesting relationship for sure. Yeah. And uh, she's somebody that I, I feel like I need to read more about because uh, she had a lot more to do with everything than I, and then I think we think, especially around the time that you focused on with Gambaru is, I mean, she's one of the main characters at one point. And someone who it just depends on who you talk to and it depends on what their experience of her was like. Certainly Marafuji remembered, um, this is a, an anecdote that Alicia from Kickout 299 referred to. So in Marafuji's book, um, he makes mention of a time when uh, she took him out. She He was out to dinner, I think, with the barbers and she just gave him like a handful of coins and just said look just go to the video game arcade and have a night off you know um he was 18 or 19 at the time it seems like a small gesture but considering how little the trainees managed to get out during those days and kind of how they were sort of confined to the dojo that was a pretty like huge gesture from her so all this generosity from her as well as the stories of how she 
wasn't interested in Kenta Kabashi in the start or kind of stories like this, it's almost like dealing with multiple people, um, depending on who you spoke to about it and what their dealings were like with her. Yeah, there are definitely different sides to Motoko Baba, lots of different sides, not in a a manic way, just in a complex way. And I think uh, something I hoped to do with the book was capture that there was some more complexity to the split than simply that she was the one who was responsible for it, as I think a lot of people seem to think, um, that there was a dynamic at play and it was between multiple people and that we generally get one side of that um largely because you know everyone loves misawa and um noah was so impressive and i think that we then largely forget that also barbara was someone who did these generous uh kind of things like providing the gaijin with food so they could celebrate thanksgiving um or that she was someone who a lot of the Gaijin stuck around for and remained loyal to despite the split. So it's a more complex story than simply that she was this person that caused everyone to leave. As I think sometimes we think about that as being. It's also interesting to think about how people viewed Baba, how, how calm and gentle times were before his death. And it seems so volatile after uh, once he died, it seemed really, you know, it's like, you're, it's like low level Game of Thrones or something. Yeah. <laughs> um, Game of Thrones is actually a, com- a comparison I, I hadn't thought about till now, but it definitely fits. Yeah. Like a Sopranos or Game of Thrones is very much like a, the king past and uh, who's next on the throne. Um, you know, by that time, Jumbo had passed too. So it, it's interesting to think about it, like in the uh, like, uh, tree form family tree form. And uh, if you think of, of of these guys as Baba's sons, um, they all went different ways. Onita went a very different way too. He's what he's the bad son. Kawada went one way. They all went very different paths. And it's interesting to, to think about that. And your book really focuses on that volatile, let's say like three, four years, especially after Baba's death and, during the creation of Noah and also the reformation or, or uh, the remnants of all Japan it went through completely up and down stages, both with, with, with houses, but with, with talent, uh, the, the face of the company seemed to change a few times in a short amount of time. It was just not what you're used to with all Japan. All Japan is, so uh, traditional conservative r- ritualistic mm-hmm. almost it's uh it's like your sunday matinee tradition uh, i've i'd been to all japan shows in the afternoon where there were tons of older men there and they were sleeping but they were just there because yeah. that's what they do on sundays yeah it's um, part of their uh, uh uh weekly tradition their weekly plan i saw I, I was seated next to a couple that had kind of started talking to me and I had to sort of apologize to them because I don't speak that much Japanese and kind of a quick gemenesai, gemenesai, you know, gaijin. And then I just sort of said, I'm sorry, how's your English? And the guy said, oh, okay. And then spoke to me in quite a detailed kind of way. And it was clear that they had been going to this event for decades and kind of you know, everyone knows the 2nd and 3rd of January at Kirken Hall. And 
um, with that whole ritual, it, it's kind of uh, something that we hope that, or I certainly hope that they can sort of keep the loyalty of those fans, but do what every company needs to do as far as creating new ones. Yeah, it's something that's more in line with like over in the States with the Super Bowl. It's it's not just the game. It's also or WrestleMania. It's it's a it's something that embedded itself in modern culture as something that you do beyond wrestling. So when you think about it like that, I guess the idea of what is wrestling becomes that more important, especially in Japan especially in this situation. Mm-hmm. I mean, I once got a, um, a taxi ride from the Tokyo Dome Hotel to the Brutacon, and the taxi driver just pulled up and just turned to me and said, oh, Zenhon Pro Rest? And I just said, oh, no. Uh, and I had to kind of think about that, and they hadn't been at the Dome, at the, um, at the Brutacon for quite some time. So... Um, it's sort of this kind of coded thing that the Budokan is their home and that that has been what you do or the, the sport that is associated with that venue. Right. Yeah. It's, it's like a WWE and Madison square garden up until recently. It has, it has a kind of connection, spiritual connection or a brand uh, connection as well. And the history and the events that have taken place there and the, Kind of uh, in the case of the, the um, Madison Square Garden, there are the kind of posters and things on the wall that signify that that took place, that these events took place there, and kind of um, they're part of the physical shape of the building, really. Um, I'm trying to think of what else I wanted to hit one more thing before we wrapped up, Dr. Jonathan. I guess if you had to recommend one match for a reader of your book to watch from the era that you wrote about in Gambaru, anything that comes to mind, you can one or two. There's, yeah. um, there's I actually, know I have one that comes to mind immediately. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, what comes to mind first for you? For some reason, Tenru and Muto, I figured, yeah. I think 2001. Yeah. Um, but in a lot of ways I like it, but it's almost like it's not an all Japan match. It's like yeah. they're using all Japan as Muto and Tenru's platform for doing whatever they do because they're so, I mean, they're so like independent spirit. There's such independent spirits. Like Tenru is so Tenru in that match. And Muto is so new Muto in that match. So asterisks next to that one, I suppose. Yeah. It kind of starts off in a, a traditional way and you have all the signposts of a traditional all Japan match. And then it kind of, um, it, it won, I think, the match of the year from the observers uh, yes. that year. So definitely, that's definitely one that's up there. Um, as a lot of people thinking that it's time to give up on all Japan and to look away from it, and them sort of saying, "Don't go just yet, because we still have plenty to show you." Tenru um, will kill himself for the company, yes. or, or his opponent, or his <laughs> opponent. Um, so there was that. There was um a video that someone put together it's not a match but it's a a visual kind of overhaul of everything that happened in the split period um and it's simply called pro wrestling noah all japan all japan split music video um put together by a guy named hans mir and that has a, a bit of match footage in there as well 
um, that from this period. So that's a nice visual component or a visual complement to the book. Um, and beside that, there's also, I think, that match between um, returning to Tenru, Tenru and Kawada in mm. 2000 for the vacant Triple Crown, because that one had a lot of the signs of the traditional All Japan um, kind of matchups and kind of uh, in the same way kind of showed that Kawada was going to be a big part of the company from then on. And it really signified Tenru's return to the company in his winning the belt. So that all the belts, and that would be one definitely worth um, checking out. Beyond that, one that's outside of the confines of the book is when Kawada defended the triple crown against Kojima. That was mm. a match. And that's a great one as well. One of the best ones that all Japan had since the split. So you asked for one match, I've given you two there, but that's, that's the, it's, it's a triple crown of matches. I think that we found here. Okay. So for Gabaru, the book, how can people pick it up? That's available through Amazon and you can, um, see that on my uh, pin tweet as well at Jonathan Foy, all one word, very boring Twitter handle, but that's uh, my pin tweet has a link to that and it's available in ebook or uh, we've got a, a printed version out now. So um, depending on what you prefer, you've got your options there. Great. And how can we reach you on social media if we'd like to ask questions or follow up? Sure. So I'm on Twitter at Jonathan Foy. Um, that's probably the best place to go, uh, for that. Um, I'm on Facebook as well. If you want to add me, um, again, I think uh, I could always borrow through me Saito's, um, I kind of rule for adding me on Facebook, which is just simply send me a message as well. Um, I, I love that he includes that every time he mentions it. So I, I might as well borrow from that. It makes, it makes it a little bit less bewildering for me that way. Um, so that, those are two main, um, conduits for me for social media. So, um, yeah, feel free to check that out. And, um, it's been great to see all the kind of interest that the book has had so far. I wasn't expecting it to have the interest it's had. So it's been great. Yeah. I think there is a, 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 some kind of underground buzz somewhere uh, buzzing somewhere on the internet. It's, I don't know where it's coming from. I think somebody like Eddie Kingston has been uh, pretty vocal on Twitter about all Japan and, a lot of the eras that we talked about today, uh, if you follow his social media, uh, a lot of it's just all Japan videos. And for somebody who's on uh, cable television in the States, I think that's the most, uh, what's the word? The most eyeballs on all Japan in the States. I, I, mean, I mean, I think, I think yeah. Actually, in Australia, let me ask you before we go, did you have uh, NOAA or All Japan Television or any Japanese television uh, available on Australian TV? That's the crazy thing. We never have. Um, for here, it's the, the big thing was we had tape trading, which there was a small local scene here. There's you know people buying the DVDs up to a point. And apart from that, we've had streaming. And um, New Japan had a couple of tours out this way a couple of years ago, but... We've never had the Japanese product on our domestic TV. So that would be something that I don't understand why that's the case. We have a multicultural broadcaster here in the SBS that shows all kinds of other sports and kind of um, tries to contextualize a lot of, uh, you know, Japanese TV. Like we had, um, uh, what was the show? It was a reality TV show that 
had some wrestlers involved. Um, so, but they've shown things like that, basically that they um, had terrace house, for instance. So I didn't, I don't know why SBS never thought to have some Japanese wrestling on as filler content or something like that, but mm. um, there's been no TV um, really as far as that kind of exposure goes. So that would be great if someone could think of doing that. Um, but yeah, look in the, in the main, I think um, someone like Eddie Kingston has been, a great ambassador for that kind of product. And he said to Chris Jericho at one point on their podcast, um, they recorded, look, if all Japan want to get in touch with me and book me, I would be fascinated to go to all Japan. So I would love to see that, but yeah, whether that works out politically or not. I think that would be, I just have a hunch that would be a big no, no. Uh, I'm sure there'd be a lot of barriers he'd be crossing and things like that. I mean, that, that, that's a true forbidden door right there. Um, if anyone could make it work, it would be Eddie Kingston. I'm sure there'd be some way that he could convince Tony Khan to kind of allow that to happen. I don't know what the machinations are, but they've, they've allowed um, certainly DDT guys to come over to AEW despite the working relationship they have. So, well, my, my perspective is I'm thinking Tony Khan, I'm sure wouldn't care. I'm sure it's new Japan who would, be sour on everything because i think it was last year where they pulled will osprey from an mlw show because mlw was working with all japan and tajiri yeah um so, i mean of, yeah that's how like that's how it is and so, yeah we did we did see um a couple of weeks ago a match in RevPer in the uk between Who's the British guy who was wrestling there? It was, um, uh, uh, it was a, a New Japan talent there. Gabriel Kidd? Gabriel Kidd against... Uh, Francesco. Francesco yeah. Akira. Francesco so Akira. It's strange because they allowed that match to, to go ahead and everything. I guess it might have been on neutral ground or it might have been that there was that kind of difference, but it might just be a certain capriciousness on, on New Japan's fan part or it could just be what they perceive to be where their interests lie. But I think you can see them do business when it, it, it is in their interest. So again, I, I'd, I'd be curious to see if they could pull it off. They probably can't, but maybe it's just my, my wrestling brain at this point, booking dream matches and everything like that. But it's a complex political situation over there. Yeah, that and also when it's a situation like that, I feel like Japanese companies often take the path of least resistance. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, and it's always on the foreign side that we're pushing for some kind of change or something. And it's it's just a, it's a cultural nuance. I think that, I, I mean, it just feels like it makes sense when it, like you have something a situation where this could work, this could make sense, this could make everybody a lot of money, but it would involve a lot of work and change. And that is just, that's a hill you got to get over when you're yeah. working with Japanese companies. I don't, it's, it, it, it's ambiguous. It's not, it's not so straightforward, but that feeling totally, I, I get it. Yeah. And it's definitely not just about what will make them the most money at the end of the day, the, the value of relationships, the value of, their traditions and keeping to what the company stand for is a big thing there. So, um, yeah, it's why we didn't see a lot of things change, um, for all Japan for as long as it did. And, uh, 
part of what got them into the situation that, that they ended up in with the split, but now being forced to work with other companies and being forced to do certain things that they said they would never do. Mm. Fortunately, it's not technically all Japan. So maybe there's more a hypothetical wiggle room to do other things and be a little more out there without that, um, you know, mental connection in the back of your head. It's not, it's not exactly connected to Baba. So if it's different then somehow that's okay. Is it like maybe double negative theory? Yeah, no, but yeah, for sure. They have the, the freedom there to borrow from their traditions to point to the 50th anniversary to celebrate Baba, but to also have that wiggle room, as you, as you say, to kind of be able to do new things and to hopefully um, be able to kind of uh, embrace something that leads to them getting more fans and more traction. I, I hope that, um, that they can continue for the next 50 years. I think what Noah has recently done is, is a bit similar, uh, is kind of disconnecting from the green era, the Misawa era, and they're going into their own new era while respecting tradition and not leaving it behind. But again, they have the wiggle room because Definitely. of the ownership. They have the green on their mat still, but it's on the corner of the the ring there and they still have their annual tribute show to Misawa and they still, they're booking the Budokan again and all that kind of stuff, but it's very much um, still bringing in guys that you would not associate with the Noah product um, as far as some of Inoki's guys and, and um, certainly the current GHC heavyweight champion is not someone you would associate with Noah. Um, one of my favorites. And, and I love Kazuki Fujita. I, I love Fujita as well. Um, but it caused quite the controversial storm on Twitter. When <laughs> it did. It did. It didn't. I don't know. I I liked the match. I thought the finish was good, and I loved the uh, the promo going into it with Fujita just no selling a beer spot. And people, the way they challenge him now is to pour beer on his head. I don't know how to love someone. It's so stupid, but um, I enjoy it. It's just really stupid. Um, When it happened, I was like, I got out of my chair chair and I cheered. I was like, this is the best. You just won. And then it it lasted for five seconds until I went, I don't know what the long-term ramifications are for Noah's booking here, the fact that he's the champion. Um, I I think this might have something to do, and I might be completely off, but I thought I heard something about Nakajima doing something with Glate, the Glate company, just like a one-off. Maybe that's why. I would love to see that. Um, He's currently got a ruptured eardrum um, that he suffered. Yeah. Um, It went pretty hard. Fujita does. Uh, that's not the first time um, that he's done that either. But uh, you can bet that there were a couple of receipts as well, though, in that match. Like he hits him pretty hard. It's you know, and it happens. It happens in um, Japanese wrestling that people get injured like that. I don't think that's just Fujita that has that happen. But um, yeah, I, I would love to see as far as Nakajima goes when he is healthy again. He, him and Glate would or a great. Um, would be one of those kind of things that just makes sense from how that looks in ring. But I don't, again, we talk about the politics of this. I don't know what the politics are of Noah and great at the moment. I know that they, they heavily- seem to have some kind of um, like, they're like an open, open promotion. It seems like they're, there's no, because they're so new that they're working with whomever wants, to, whoever it's good to work with, they'll work with. It doesn't mm-hmm. seem like there's as much political laundry with this. 
because it's so new. And I think it also has something to do with uh, during the COVID time, Hase and the sports uh, bureau, the, the athletic bureau, they were awarded some kind of PPP type loan. I, I don't think it's like, it's exactly like that, but it's, they're one of the companies that received funding from the government for entertainment. So I think because of that, there's like that, um, it doesn't have to be, uh, because it's being funded by the government, there's more ability to share amongst everyone rather than compete with each other. They don't have the the baggage of a TV contract. They share products on on YouTube and on pay-per-view. But definitely Noah were involved at the start with, Nosawa Rongai being on the board for great, but he opted to resign from that. And mm-hmm. we haven't seen any Noah talent involved just yet. So uh, again, with Japanese pro wrestling, something doesn't happen. And you say that something could never happen until it just goes ahead and does. And the, the landscape shifts so quickly and so dramatically. Um, we saw that with the split. We saw that with some of the machinations during the Muto years. I think we're seeing that now as far as, these joint events that are happening and everything like that. So it's definitely one to keep your eye on because yeah, we'll say it can't happen until it just does. All right. I'm sorry to keep you. We were about to wrap up, but we just got so caught up again because there's so much to talk about. And that is a good idea that you should be writing another book about Noah, because there's just as much to go through with that 10, 15 years of pro wrestling history. Uh, Yeah. I think that I'm excited for the next book. So sounds good. It was great talking to you, Jonathan. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Save big money on plant protection supplies. Now at Menards. Defend your garden with Triazicide Insect Killer. Its fast-acting formula protects lawns, vegetables, and many other plants. It kills more than 260 insects by contact, above and below ground. Choose from ready-to-spray, concentrate, or granular. Save big money on Triazicide Insect Killer at Menards. And check out our weekly flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save big money at when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.